0: Chapter 25 of The Golden Dream This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org The Golden Dream by R M Ballantyne Chapter 25 Gold not all powerful Remarkable growth of Sacramento New style of bringing a hotel into notice A Surprising Discovery, Death of a Mexican Horse Tamer, The Concert, and Another Discovery, Mademoiselle Melina Creates a Sensation. It is said that gold can accomplish anything, and in some respects the saying is full of truth. In some points of view, however, the saying is altogether wrong. Gold can indeed accomplish almost anything in the material world. It can purchase stone and metal and timber, and muscles, bones, fuse and sinews with life in them to any extent. It can go a step further. It can purchase brains, intellect, genius, and throwing the whole together material and immaterial, it can cut and carve and mold the world to such an extent that its occupants of fifty years ago, were they permitted to return to earth, would find it hard to recognize the scene of their brief existence but there are things and powers which gold cannot purchase that worn-out old millionaire would give tons of it for a mere tithe of the health that yonder plowman enjoys youth cannot be bought with gold time cannot be purchased with gold the prompt obedience of thousands of men and women may be bought with that precious metal But one powerful throb of a loving heart could not be procured by all the yellow gold that ever did or ever will enrich the human family. But we are verging towards digression. Let us return to the simple idea with which we intended to begin this chapter, the wonder-working power of gold. In no country in the wide world we venture to affirm has this power been exemplified so strikingly as in California. The knowledge of the discovery of gold was so suddenly and widely disseminated over the earth that human beings flowed into the formerly uninhabited wilderness like a mighty torrent, while thousands of ships flooded the markets with the necessaries of life. Then gold was found to be so abundant, and at first so easily procured, that the fever was kept up at white heat for several years. The result of this was, as we have remarked elsewhere, that changes worthy of Aladdin's lamp or Harlequin's wand were wrought in the course of a few weeks, sometimes in a few days. The city of Sacramento was one of the most remarkable of the many strange and sudden growths in the country. The river on which it stands is a beautiful stream, from two to three hundred yards wide, and navigable by large craft to a few miles above the city the banks when our friends were there were fringed with rich foliage and the wild trees of the forest itself stood growing in its streets the city was laid out in the form of a square with streets crossing each other at right angles a forest of masts along the embarcadero attested the growing importance and wealth of the place and nearly ten thousand inhabitants swarmed in its streets many of those streets were composed of canvas tents or erections scarcely more durable Yet here, little more than a year before, there were only four thousand in the place. Those who chanced to be in possession of the land here were making fortunes. Lots, twenty feet by seventy in the best situations, brought upwards of thirty-five hundred dollars. Rents, too, were enormous. One hotel paid thirty thousand dollars, six thousand pounds per annum, another thirty-five thousand dollars. Small stores fetched ten and twelve thousand dollars a year, while board at the best hotels was five dollars a day. Truly, if gold was plentiful, it was needed, for the common necessaries of life, though plentiful, were bought and sold at fabulous prices. The circulation of gold was enormous, and the growth of the city did not suffer a check even for a day, although the cost of building was unprecedented. And this commercial prosperity continued in spite of the fact that the place was unhealthy being a furnace in summer, and in winter little better than a swamp. "'It's a capital hotel,' remarked Captain Bunting to his companions as they sat round their little table, enjoying their pipes after dinner. "'I wonder if they make a good thing out of it.' "'Sure, if they don't,' said Larry, tilting his chair on its hind legs and calmly blowing a cloud of smoke towards the roof. "'It's a losing game they're playing, for they starve out the grub at a tearing pace.' they are doing well i doubt not said ned Sinton. and they deserve to for the owner or owners i don't know how many or few there are made a remarkable and enterprising start how was that asked the captain i heard of it when i was down here with tom continued Sinton. "'You must know that this was the first regular hotel opened in the city, "'and it was considered so great an event "'that it was celebrated by salvos of artillery "'and on the part of the proprietors "'by a great unlimited feast to all who chose to come.' "'What?' cried Larry. "'Frey! Gratis! For nothing!' "'Aye, for nothing. "'It was done in magnificent style, I assure you. Any one who chose came and called for what he wanted "'and got it at once.' The attendance was prompt and as cheerfully given as though it had been paid for. Gin slings, cocktails, mint juleps, and brandy smashes went round like a circular storm. Even champagne flowed like water. And venison, wild fowl, salmon, grizzly bear steaks, and pastry, all the delicacies of the season, in short, were literally to be had for the asking. What it cost the spirited proprietors I know not, but certainly it was a daring stroke of genius that deserved patronage. Fie, it did, said Larry emphatically, and they shall have it, too. Here, waiter, a brandy smash in the cheroot, and be aisy as to the cost. I think me bank'll stand it. What say ye to a stroll, said Ned, rising? By all means, replied Captain Bunting, jumping up and laying down his pipe. Larry preferred to remain where he was, so the two friends left him to enjoy his cheroot, and wandered away where fancy led to see the town there was much to be seen. It required no theatrical representation of life to amuse one in Sacramento at that time. The whole city was a vast series of plays in earnest. Every conceivable species of comedy and farce met the eye at every turn. Costumes the most remarkable, men the most varied and peculiar, and things the most incomprehensible and unexpected presented themselves in endless succession. Here, a canvas restaurant stood, or rather leaned against a log store. There, a tent spread its folds in juxtaposition to a deck cabin, which seemed to have walked ashore from a neighboring brig without leave, and had been let out as a grog-shop by way of punishment. Chinamen in calico jostled sailors in canvas, or diggers in scarlet flannel shirts, or dandies in broadcloth and patent leather, or red Indians in nothing. Bustle and hurry and uproar and joviality prevailed. A good deal of drinking, too, unfortunately went on, and the results were occasional melodramas and sometimes serious rows. Tragedies, too, were enacted, but these seldom met the eye. As is usually the case, they were done in the dark. "'What have we here?' cried Captain Bunting, stopping before a large placard and reading. "'Grand concert this evening. Wonderful singer.' mademoiselle nalina first appearance ethiopian serenaders i say ned we must go to this i've not heard a song for ages that was worth listening to at what hour inquired ned oh seven o'clock well we can stroll back to the hotel have a cup of coffee and bring larry o'neil with us come along That evening our three adventurers occupied the back seat of a large concert room in one of the most crowded thoroughfares of the town, patiently awaiting the advent of the performers. The room was filled to overflowing long before the hour for the commencement of the performances with every species of mortal except woman. Women were exceedingly rare creatures at that time. The meetings of all sorts were composed almost entirely of men in their varied and motley garbs. Considering the circumstances in which it was got up, the room was a very creditable one, destitute indeed of ornament, but well lighted by an enormous wooden chandelier full of wax candles, which depended from the center of the ceiling. At the further end of the room was a raised stage with footlights in front and three chairs in the middle of it. There was a small orchestra in front consisting of two fiddles, a cornopian, a trombone, a clarionet, and a flute. But at first the owners of these instruments kept out of sight, wisely reserving themselves until that precise moment when the impatient audience would, as all audiences do on similar occasions, threaten to bring down the building with stamping of feet, accompanied with steam engine-like whistles and savage cries of music. While Ned Sinton and his friends were quietly looking round upon the crowd, Larry O'Neill's attention was arrested by the conversation of two men who sat just in front of him. One was a rough looking miner in a wide awake and red flannel shirt. The other was a negro in a shirt of blue striped calico. Who be this Missy Nalina? inquired the negro, turning to his companion. I dunno, but I was here last night, and I'd take my davy I saw the little gal in the ranch of a feller away in the plains five hundred miles to the east'ard two months ago. Her father, poor chap, was killed by a wild horse. "'How was that?' inquired the negro with an expression of great interest. "'Well, it was this way it happened,' replied the other, "'putting a quid of tobacco into his cheek "'such as only a sailor would venture to masticate. "'I was up at the diggings about six months "'without getting more gold than just kept me in life, "'for you see I was always an unlucky dog. "'When one day I goes down to my claim and at the very first lick dug up two chunks of gold as big as your fists so i sold my claim and shovel and come down here for a spray well as i was saying i come to the ranch of a feller called Banji or bondy or Bungie or some sort of bang with a g at the end of it he was clapping his little gal on the head when i come up and said good to her I didn't rightly hear what she said, but I was so taken with her pretty face that I couldn't help asking if the little thing was his'n. Yes, says he, for he was a Mexican and couldn't come round the English lingo. She, me daughter, I found the man was goin' to catch a wild horse, so says I. I'll go with you, and says he, come along. So away we went, slapping over the plains at a great rate, him and me and a Yankee, a friend of his, and three or four servants after a drove of wild horses that had been seen that morning near the house. Well, away we went after the wild horses. Oh, it was grand sport. The man had lent me one of his beasts, and it went at such a spanking pace I could scarce keep my seat and had to hold on by the saddle. Not being used to riding much, do you see. We soon picked out a horse a splendid-looking feller with curved neck and free gallop and wide nostrils. My, eye! how he did snort and plunge when the Mexican threw the lasso. It went right over his head the first cast, but the wild horse pulled the rope out of his grip. It's all up, thought I, but never a bit. The Mexican put spurs to his horse and while at full gallop made a dive with his body and actually caught the end of the line as it trailed over the ground and recovered his seat again. It was done in a crack, and I believe he held on by means of his spurs, which were big enough, I think, to make wheels for a small carronade. Taking a turn of the line round the horn of his saddle, he reined in a bit and then gave the spurs for another spurt, and soon after reined in again. In fact, he just played the wild horse like a trap, until he well-nigh choked him, and in an hour or less he was led steaming and starting and jumping into the corral, where the man kept his other horses. At this point in the narrative, the cries for music became so deafening that the sailor was obliged to pause to the evident annoyance of the negro, who seemed intensely interested in what he had heard, and also to the regret of Larry, who had listened eagerly the whole time. In a few minutes the music came in, in the shape of two bald-headed Frenchmen, a wild-looking bearded German, and several lean men who might, as far as appearance went, have belonged to almost any nation, and who would have, as far as musical ability went, been repudiated by every nation, except perhaps the Chinese. During the quarter of an hour in which these performers quieted the impatient audience with sweet sounds, the sailor continued his anecdote. "'Well, you see,' said he to the negro while Larry bent forward to listen, "'the Mexican mounted and raced and spurred him for about an hour. "'But just at the last the wild horse gave a to sleep and a plunge, "'and we noticed the rider fall forward as if he'd got a sprain.' The Yankee, and one of the servants ran up and caught the horse by the head, but its rider didn't move. He was stone dead, and was held in his seat by the spurs sticking in the saddle-cloth. The last bound must have ruptured some blood vessel inside, for there was no sign of hurt upon him anywhere. "'You don't say that,' said the Negro, with a look of horror. "'Gee, do I,' and we took the poor feller home where his little daughter cried for him as if she'd break her heart. I asked Yankee what we should do, but he looked at me somewhat offended-like and said he was a relation of the dead man's wife and could manage the affairs of the family without help. So I bid him good morning and went my way. But I believe in my heart he was telling a lie and that he's no right to go hawking the poor gal about the country in this fashion. Larry was deeply interested in this narrative, and felt so strong a disposition to make further inquiries, that he made up his mind to question the sailor, and was about to address him when a small bell tinkled, the music ceased, and three Ethiopian minstrels, banjo in hand, advanced to the footlights, made their bow, and then seated themselves on the three chairs, with that intensity of consummate, impudent, easy familiarity, peculiar to the ebony sons of song. "'Go to it, darkies!' shouted an enthusiastic individual in the middle of the room. Three cheers for the niggers!' roared a sailor who had just returned from a twelve-month's cruise at the mines, and whose delight at the prospect of once more hearing a good song was quite irrepressible. The audience responded to the call with shouts of laughter and a cheer that would have done your heart good to listen to, while the niggers showed their teeth in acknowledgment of the compliment." the first song was lily dale and the men who we need scarcely say were fictitious negroes sang it so well that the audience listened with breathless attention and evident delight and encored it vociferously the next song was oh massa how he wopped me a ditty of quite a different stamp but equally popular it also was encored as indeed was every song sung that evening but the performers had counted on this after the third song there was a hornpipe in the performance of which the dancer's chief aim seemed to be to show in what a variety of complex ways he could shake himself to pieces if he chose then there was another trio and then a short pause in order duly to prepare the public mind for the reception of the great cantatrice mademoiselle nalina when she was led to the footlights by the tallest of the three negroes there was a momentary pause as if men caught their breath Then there was a prolonged cheer of enthusiastic admiration, and little wonder for the creature that appeared before these rough miners seemed more like an angelic visitant than a mortal. There was nothing strikingly beautiful about the child, but she possessed that inexpressibly sweet character of face that takes the human heart by storm at first sight, and this added to the fact that she was almost the only one of her sex who had been seen for many months by any of those present that she was fair, blue-eyed, delicate, modestly dressed, and innocent, filled them with an amount of enthusiasm that would have predisposed them to call a scream melodious had it been uttered by Mademoiselle Nelina. But the voice which came timidly from her lips was in harmony with her appearance. There was no attempt at execution, and the poor child was too frightened to succeed in imparting much expression to the simple ballad which she warbled, but there was an inherent richness in the tones of her voice that entranced the ear, and dwelt for weeks and months afterwards on the memory of those who heard it that night. It is needless to add that all her songs were encored with rapturous applause. The second song she sang was the popular one, Aaron, My Country, and it created quite a furor among the audience, many of whom were natives of the Green Isle. "'Oh, you party creature, sang it again, do! yelled an Irishman in the front seats, while he waved his hat and cheered in mad enthusiasm. The multitude shouted, Encore, and the song was sung for the third time. While it was singing, Larry O'Neill sat with his hands clasped before him, his bosom heaving and his eyes riveted on the child's face. "'Mr. Sinton,' he said in a deep, earnest tone, touching Ned on the shoulder— "'as the last sweet notes of the air were drowned "'in the thunder of applause "'that followed Mademoiselle Melina off the stage. "'Mr. Sinton, I'd lay me life that it's her.' "'Who?' inquired Ned, "'smiling at the serious expression of his comrade's face. "'Who but Nilly Morgan, of course. "'She's the born image of Kate. "'There is like as two pays. "'Sure, if it's her, I'll know it, I will. "'And I'll make that black... "'Thief of a Yankee, Captain, explain how he come to possess stolen goods!' Ned and the captain at first expressed doubts as to Larry's being able to swear to the identity of one whom he had never seen before, but the earnest assurances of the Irishman convinced them that he must be right, and they at once entered into his feelings and planned in an eager undertone how the child was to be communicated with. "'It won't do,' said Ned, to tax the man right out with his villainy. The miners would say we wanted to get possession of the child to make money by her. "'But if the child herself admitted that the man was not her relative,' suggested Captain Bunting, "'perhaps,' returned Ned, "'she might at the same time admit that she didn't like the appearance of the strangers "'who made such earnest inquiries about her, and prefer to remain with her present guardian.' "'Never fear,' said Larry, in a hoarse whisper. "'She'll not say that if I tell her I know her sister Kate and can take her to her. "'Besides, hasn't she got an Irish heart? "'And don't I know the way to touch it. "'Just stay where you are, both of you, and I'll go behind the scenes. "'The niggers are coming on again, so I'll try. "'Maybe there's nobody there but herself.' "'Before they could reply, Larry was gone.' In a few minutes he reached the front seats, and leaning his back against the wall as if he were watching the performers, he gradually edged himself into the dark corner where the side curtains shut off the orchestra from the public. To his great satisfaction, he found that this was only secured to the wall by one or two nails, which he easily removed, and then, in the midst of an uproarious laugh, caused by a joke of the serenaders, he pushed the curtain aside and stood before the astonished gaze of Mademoiselle Nalina, who sat on a chair with her hands clasped and resting on her knee. Unfortunately for the success of Larry's enterprise, he also stood before the curtain-raiser, a broad, sturdy man in rough miner's costume whose back was turned towards him, but whose surprised visage instantly faced him on hearing the muffled noise caused by his entry. There was a burly negro also in the place, seated on a small stool, who looked at him with unqualified astonishment. "'Hello? What do you want?' exclaimed the curtain-raiser. Ah, "'Tarren ages!' cried Larry in amazement. "'May I never! Sure it's dreamin' I am, and the ghost o' Bill Jones is come to see me!' It was, indeed, no other than Bill Jones who stood revealed before him but no friendly glance of recognition did his old comrade vouchsafe him. He continued, after the first look of surprise, to frown steadily on the intruder. "'You've the advantage of me, young man,' said Bill, in a stern, though subdued tone, for he feared to disturb the men on the stage. "'Moreover, you've comed in where you've no right to be. "'When a man goes where he shouldn't ought to, "'and things looks as if they wasn't all square,' "'In them circumstances, blow high or blow low, "'I always go straight forward and shoves him out. "'If he don't shove easy, why, put on more steam, that's what I say.' "'But sure you don't forget me, Bill,' pleaded Larry in amazement. "'Well, perhaps I don't, and perhaps I do. "'When I last enjoyed the dishonor of your acquaintance, "'you was a blackguard. "'It ain't likely you're improved.' so be good enough to back your top sails and clear out. Bill Jones pointed as he spoke to the opening through which Larry had entered, but suddenly changing his mind he said, Hold on, there's a back door, and it'll be easier to kick you through that than through the concert room. So saying, Bill seized Larry O'Neill by the collar and led that individual in a state of helpless and wondering consternation through a back door, where, however, instead of kicking him out, he released him and suddenly changed his tone to an eager whisper. Oh, Larry, lad, I'm glad to see you. Wherever did you come from? I've no time to speak. Uncle Ned's just buried and Jim Crow comes on in three minutes. I had to pretend, you know, cause it wouldn't do to let Jim see I knowed you. That was him on the stool. I know what brought you here and I've found out who she is. Where do you stop? larry's surprise just permitted him to gasp out the words city hotel when a roar of laughter and applause met their ears followed by the tinkle of a small bell bill sprang through the doorway and slammed the door in his old comrade's face it would be difficult to say looking at that face on that particular time whether the owner thereof was mad or drunk or both so strangely did it wrinkle and contort as it gradually dawned upon its owner that bill jones true to his present profession was acting a part that he knew about the mystery of mademoiselle Nelina, was now acquainted with his larry's place of abode and would infallibly find him out after the concert was over As these things crossed his mind, Larry smote his thigh so often and so vigorously that he ran the risk of being taken up for unwarrantably discharging his revolver in the streets, and he whistled once or twice so significantly that at least five stray dogs answered to the call. At last he hitched up the band of his trousers, and, hastening round to the front door, essayed to re-enter the concert room. "'Pay here, please.' cried the money-taker in an extremely nasal tone as he passed the little hole in the wall. "'We've paid already,' answered Larry. "'Show your check, then.' "'Sure, I don't know what that is.' The doorkeeper smiled contemptuously and shut down with a bang the bar that kept off the public. Larry doubled his fist and flushed crimson. Then he remembered the importance of the business he had on hand and quietly drew the requisite sum from his leather purse. "'Come along,' said he to Ned Sinton on re-entering the room. "'I've seen her. i Bill Jones, too.' "'Bill Jones?' cried Ned and the captain simultaneously. said Larry. "'Don't be making people observe us. "'Come along home, it's all right. "'We'll tell you all about it when we're out.' "'In another minute the three friends were in the street "'conversing eagerly and earnestly "'as they hastened to their quarters "'through the thronged and noisy streets of Sacramento.' End of chapter 25